If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Often, I think, when people came back, there was this kind of distrust on both sides that, you know, the ones who'd stayed and had endured the starvation and the real awfulness of occupation felt kind of resentful to those who'd left, felt that they'd almost run away from it and kind of escaped all of that. The ones who'd left and who had kind of not had to compromise in any way, who had maintained this very black and white idea about our side and their side and so on in the war, were quite distrustful of the ones who'd stayed. That was Duncan Barrett talking about the German occupation of the Channel Islands. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring what life was like for British subjects under German occupation during the Second World War. Of course, Britain never was successfully invaded, but the Channel Islands were, and their inhabitants spent several years living under Nazi rule. Their story has been explored by the author Duncan Barrett for his new book, Hitler's British Isles. And he came into our studio here in Bristol to speak to our website assistant, Rachel Dinning. 
So your latest book, Hitler's British Isles, you interviewed a number of people who experienced the German occupation of the Channel Islands. So whose story, I thought it'd be a good question to start with, whose story, heard either first-hand or second-hand, made the biggest impression on you? I guess to some extent I went into this project knowing the kind of stories that I was looking for to a certain extent. I knew I was looking for people who'd struggled in terms of food. I knew I was looking for stories of people who'd had some kind of interaction with the slave labourers who were who were brought over there. Um, one of the things that surprised me the most was I interviewed a woman called Pearl who was involved in the amateur dramatic scene. And that was something that my kind of background research into the occupation hadn't really uh, given me much information about. It wasn't something I was massively aware of until I started digging into it. And from talking to her and then doing a bit more research around that, I kind of discovered that actually this was a huge part of the occupation story that people don't generally talk about because I guess it's not as um, immediate and kind of life-changing as, you know, starving because you don't have enough food or whatever. But at the same time, this kind of, what a lot of people tell me was one of the worst things about the occupation was boredom because they couldn't get films coming in. You know, they, they had basically what films they'd had when the Germans arrived. And then other than that, it was German propaganda movies, which people didn't particularly want to go and see. Uh, So live theatre underwent this huge explosion of interest. Uh, I think about 2% of the population of Guernsey were involved in amateur dramatics at one point. And really this was, you know, a sort of untold element of the occupation story. So that was one thing that fascinated me was just hearing her kind of stories of life on the stage and what it was like to be a kind of a star during the occupation. What sort of plays were they putting on then at that time? Well, they put on all kinds of things. I mean, the repertoire was quite broad. Um, Pearl was involved in variety, so she was more sort of singing and dancing. Um, She and her sister used to, they had an illegal radio because the radios were confiscated by the Germans, but they had an illegal one up in the attic. uh, And they would tune in and listen to the latest Vera Lynn songs uh, coming out of London. And then they'd perform them because it was, to them, it was important to sort of have up-to-date material. And she said it was very interesting because, you know, they were listening to these songs in secret. It was completely illegal. If they got found out, they'd have gotten a lot of trouble. But when they played the latest song, the audience always responded very warmly. So obviously they all recognised it. And so in a way, it was this sort of moment of solidarity, knowing that, you know, well, we know why you're reacting like that. But the Germans who are in the room have no idea because they're not aware that this song is, you know, essentially illegal. So it was always sort of a secret type of rebellion. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned that Um, Obviously, certain radio programmes were completely censored by the Germans or banned, um, but these kind of shows were permitted. I mean, presumably the Germans went along to watch them too. It would have been both the Germans and the Channel Islanders together in the audience. They did. And that was the strange thing about it. I mean, they were censored. They would have a censor who came along to the dress rehearsal and would check that there was nothing too kind of controversial in there because they did have topical material. You know, they would sing songs that um, a member of the cast had written about rationing or about uh, the black market or, or things like that, you know, potentially sort of slightly sensitive areas. They would steer clear of anything sort of more overtly uh, antagonistic to the regime. So they were quite careful to tread that line. Uh, But yeah, the Germans did come along as well. And, you know, Pearl told me that she was quite surprised um, after she joined this theatre company, the Lyric uh, Variety Company, she would have German soldiers coming up to her and trying to chat her up and so on. And she realised she was getting all this attention uh, because they'd seen her on stage and they'd seen her singing and so on and she'd made an impression on them. Um, And occasionally they did have moments where... 
there was a kind of solidarity almost across the lines of, um, you know, loyalty or across the kind of national lines. So uh, during the last Christmas of the occupation, which was a very difficult time, um, the local people were starving. The Germans were pretty much starving as well. Everyone really wanted an end to the war. It was kind of obvious by that point Germany was going to lose the war. It was just a matter of time and the conditions were deteriorating because after D-Day, the islands had been completely cut off. They were kind of under siege, so there was no food coming in. Um, and they quite boldly, I think, for their Christmas show at the Lyric Company, they um, they put these kind of ramps going down from the stage into the audience. So at the end of the show, the performers could uh, step down off the stage and come into the stalls. And they reached out their hands to the people at the front of the of the stalls, which were a mixture of locals and Germans, and everyone in the auditorium linked arms and sang Old Lang Syne together. And it was this kind of amazing moment of sort of recognising, well, yes, you know, we're on one side and you're on the other, but actually by now no one wants this war anymore. We, we, we kind of all just want it to end. And there was this kind of really incredible, I think, feeling of being together somehow. You, you know, Germans, uh, Channel Islanders, they, they all wanted the same thing in that moment. Going back to the start of the war, though, I mean, on the day that they landed in the Channel Islands, they conducted air raids. I think I've got, I mean, I've got it here. So 11 people in Jersey were killed and 33 in Guernsey. Mm. At the end of the war, you've got that image of solidarity between the two the two sides. But at the start of the war, it's hard to imagine that there wasn't an animosity between them. Was that Was that the case? It was, absolutely. And I mean... Yeah, they didn't exactly get off on the right footing in that sense. And I think a lot of people were very uh, upset and bitter about those air raids. I mean, partly because, you know, compared to the Blitz on London or something, 44 people might not sound like very many, but these were islands that had never really been in in a war in that sense. They'd never really experienced war. I mean, they'd sent men off to fight in the First World War, for example, and again in the Second World War, but they'd never really been a target themselves. And they're small islands, you know, small communities. Everyone knew someone who'd been affected by those raids, whether they'd lost a, a family member or, you know, a friend or whatever. Um, and so certainly when the Germans first arrived, there was a great deal of suspicion, as there would have been anyway. I mean, before that bombing raid, there was a period of evacuation and there was a lot of panic and all the propaganda about the Germans, you know, coming and raping and pillaging and all this sort of thing was in people's minds. But then basically what happened was, so they had this kind of terrifying raid. Everyone was sort of uh, bombed into submission in a way. I mean, you know, we talk about shock and awe. It was kind of that impact. Um, and in Jersey, for example, the Germans then dropped an ultimatum saying they wanted every building to fly a white flag. So literally not only the government had to officially surrender, but individual people were flying, you know, old sheets or underpants or whatever out of their windows to signal that everyone was surrendering, no one was going to fight. So they'd kind of been brought to this level of complete... Um, you know, almost sort of humiliated, almost kind of debased, you know what I mean? To say, right, we, we, we surrender, we give up, that's it. You know, we, we're totally at your disposal. And then what happened is the Germans came in and they behaved very well. They were very polite. You know, people were saying, oh, you know, I thought they were going to be raping and pillaging, but they're opening doors for us. They're buying children ice cream on the beaches, you know. And the reason was that the, the soldiers had been ordered to be on their best behaviour and they'd been ordered not to cause trouble, essentially. The leaders who'd been brought in to kind of run the occupation were, as I said, generally very kind of reasonable, measured, uh, you know, not sort of hardline Nazis. They were quite kind of 
you know, they were German career uh, army officers or whatever. Uh, and so there was this real incentive for everyone to make this what came to be known as a model occupation. Um, and on the part of both the German authorities and the local authorities, there was this feeling that, well, you know, we're not going to fight each other. Uh, the British have chosen to not to defend these islands. They've chosen to withdraw their troops, you know. Uh, so for the local authorities, there was this feeling of we've got to try and work with the Germans and try to build a you know, workable sort of day-to-day -day relationship with them. Uh, and that suited the Germans very much as well. So I think quite quickly within particularly that sort of first summer, um, people started to realise that the Germans weren't as terrifying as they had kind of been led to expect, both by the propaganda and by this terrifying bombing raid. Yeah, I mean, in the book, you write about some of these moments of realisation. I think one of the ones that I'm thinking of in particular was when one of the German officials, I, I can't remember who he was exactly, he turns up at Ambrose Sherwell's front door. He, so he was... Sherwell was the Attorney General was, on Guernsey and yeah. he had kind of become... Um, normally the islands were run by what was known as the bailiff, but in the case, and in the case of Jersey, that was effectively the case. The bailiff, Alexander Coutanche, continued all through the war and he was the man who dealt with the Germans. In Guernsey, it was a little bit complicated because the bailiff was this very elderly man. He was not seen as the man to kind of lead the island in that time. Um, and so he is, he was quite willing to sort of take a bit of a back seat. And Ambrose Sherwell, who was the attorney general, who had kind of, was sort of being groomed to take over in the near future anyway, was the one who ended up with this responsibility. So he was the one sort of, you know, doing the kind of official business and, and kind yeah. of negotiating with them. Yeah. And they, yeah, they turn up on his door and he, he's just put his children to bed in the hallway because that's the most safe place yeah. in case there's, you know, a bomb goes off. And they knock on the front door and he's like, can you go around the side of the house? Yeah. And they're like, why? What are you like? I know, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, oh no, it's just my children are, children are asleep. And they're like, oh, of course, we'll go around the side. Exactly. And that, yeah. that was one of the stories in, in your book that was really, to me, like, oh, that's, you know, that's how I can see how the Germans almost won some of the locals around by that, those kind exactly. of little small moments. That kind of politeness and sort of, yeah, you, you know, oh, we wouldn't dream of waking your children up. You yeah. know, <laughs> no, of course, of course, we'll come around the back. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something that kind of came up uh, again and again. And, and to some extent, um, the locals, you know, sometimes they could use it to their advantage. I mean, on Sark, which is one of the smaller islands, Sark was run in this kind of ancient feudal system. They had a kind of hereditary system of leadership and it was run by uh, the dame of Sark, Sybil Hathaway, who was quite a kind of formidable woman, um, probably compared to the bailiffs of the, you know, of, of Guernsey and Jersey, the larger islands. She was this sort of quite imperious uh you know, someone who her, the islanders were slightly in awe of. And she basically decided to play her kind of aristocratic card with the Germans when they first arrived. Um, she persuaded her husband to take a couple of their biggest chairs from their dining table and drag them up to the end of the room and set them up like thrones at the end of the room. And then she persuaded her servant to, when the Germans came to call, to sort of announce them as if they were guests visiting her sort of for an audience. And so she sort of performed this whole uh, kind of regal sort of performance really to the Germans who arrived. And the Germans were completely bewildered by it. They didn't really know what to make of it because, you know, they thought they'd come to conquer her island. And here was this sort of gracious monarch greeting them and saying, oh, of course, come in, have some dinner, you, you know, and so on. She even got them to sign her visitor's book. And you can see if you go there, you know, they've still got the visitor's book with the German commandant's signature in it saying, oh, had a lovely time at your house or whatever. Um, so, you know, in her case, she was definitely kind of playing on the fact that she knew that they were 
on their best behaviour. She knew they were going to be polite. Uh, she mentioned in her memoirs, she heard them downstairs uh, wiping their boots when they came into the house and she thought, okay, I've got them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know they're going to, exactly, they're not going to come in and, you, you know, take over in a kind of uh, sort of military way in the sense they're going to be swayed by all this decorum and protocol and, and politeness and so on. Um, How so, very British. <laughs> I know, exactly. So, And it was exactly that thing of, you know, they were impressed with her because they saw her as a kind of little monarch and therefore they kind of afforded her this respect. And definitely she, you know, did her best throughout the occupation to kind of play that card and to try to sort of use that in her dealings with them and to kind of keep the upper hand to some extent. Although they were in charge and, you know, they were occupying her island, uh, she never really submitted somehow. It didn't seem like she'd ever quite submitted to their control. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, it, it can't all have been happy relationships between the, the two sides. Were there there moments of rebellion or contention or, you know, what were the negative sides of the occupation? There were increasingly. And as time went on, it got harder and harder really to sustain that kind of those model relations. Um, the first big kind of flashpoint, I guess, was Essentially, when the islands were demilitarised, um, Churchill had been very reluctant to withdraw British forces from the island. He was determined to defend them. Uh, he thought the Navy should defend them. And his war cabinet basically all said to him, look, um, you know, this was in pretty much immediately after Dunkirk. It was a very uh, difficult time in the war. You know, Britain was pretty much alone. The whole of Europe had kind of fallen to the Germans. Um, and the war cabinet basically said to him, look, we need our forces on the mainland. We need to prepare because a German invasion is imminent. We can't risk uh, our own defence to defend the Channel Islands. So very reluctantly, he'd agreed to demilitarise the islands and not to fight for them. But he never quite um, lost interest in them to a certain extent. They were always a bit of a thorn in his side and he was always kind of wanting to get back there and cause some trouble. They couldn't really retake the islands, but they could do what they called nuisance raids, where they'd, you know, send some commandos in to take some prisoners or do a bit of sabotage or whatever. Um, and so they, they were doing these kind of raids and they were um, sending people in for reconnaissance as well. They'd get local... Um, young men who were from Guernsey, for example, or Jersey, who were now serving in the uh, British forces, and they'd send them back undercover, uh, you know, out of uniform to try and kind of, uh, you know, land in the dead of night and then sort of slip into um, and go, go unnoticed, basically, and gather intelligence. You know, how many soldiers are there? Where are the anti-aircraft guns? How many planes do they have? All this sort of thing. Um, and what happened was there were, well, a couple of times this happened, but um, the, the first time two of these men got caught out on the island, the Attorney General, Ambrose Sherwell, managed to uh, sort of wangle it so that they could be arrested as prisoners of war and sent to a prisoner of war camp instead of being shot as spies, because if they were deemed to be spies rather than soldiers, they'd be shot. Uh, the second time, it all sort of blew up in his face, basically. He tried to repeat this trick of they'd have to, you know, they'd have to go and find some old First World War uniforms for them because they didn't have uniforms on them. He'd have to sort of manage their surrender to the German authorities. And basically what happened the second time around was the local commandant who was one of these quite reasonable, uh, sort of amiable men, um, kind of knew that there were some some British soldiers, he had a feeling anyway, there were some British soldiers hanging around on the island. Sherwell knew they were there because one of them was the son of one of his colleagues um, on the controlling committee of the island. Um, but obviously he, he wasn't telling the Germans about this. And so he sort of managed this amnesty where the deal was if they turned themselves in by a certain date, they'd be treated as soldiers, not spies. They'd be taken to a prison of war camp for the rest of the war. And anyone who'd been hiding them because they'd been, you know, undercover for six weeks, something like that, you know, over a month, um, wouldn't be punished for sheltering spies, basically. 
And then what happened was the men did turn themselves in, uh, but the commandant's promise was broken by authorities higher up. So he started getting orders saying, no, you've got to arrest all their families. These two are going to be sentenced to death. You know, they're, they're spies. They're, this is, we need to set an example. And he was very upset by it. And he was writing letters sort of back to Berlin saying, you know, you can't do this to me. I've made them a promise. I have to honour my promise. He threatened to resign as a German officer over it. But basically, it, it, the situ- it all got quite ugly. There are these quite gruelling interrogations. A lot of people, Sherwell himself included, because they found out he'd known about it, ended up in prison in France. Um, the two men were sentenced to death. And then finally, at the last moment, uh, around Christmas time of that first year, 1940, so about sort of six months into the occupation, the sentence was commuted at the last minute. So the Germans sort of sentenced them to death, but then... Uh, agreed to be merciful and said, okay, we will allow them to be prisoners of war. We will send their families back. But by that point, the father of one of the men had already committed suicide in his cell because the situation was so awful. Um, And really, I think the local people in the Channel Islands had lost confidence in the Germans because they realised, well, they might seem very reasonable and very kind of uh, polite and so on. But when it comes to it, they're going to stab you in the back sooner or later. And so a lot of people were sort of saying, well, you know, we always knew not to trust the Germans and look what's happened. And so increasingly, there were these kind of situations like that. So another one, for example, would be uh, a couple of years later, they started deporting British-born islanders. And that caused a lot of kind of consternation among the uh, you know, local-born islanders as well, sort of feeling like, well, this is really going against what they promised us when they first arrived, or they wouldn't do this kind of thing. They confiscated the radios, which, for example, they'd promised at the start of the occupation that people would be allowed to keep their radios. So what it sort of felt like was as the war went on, bit by bit, the Germans kept going back on things that they'd promised. Um, and that combined with the fact that food became increasingly scarce, life became increasingly tough, um, And also, when the Germans became very focused on fortifying the islands, because Hitler was convinced that Churchill would try to retake them, because for Hitler, they were this very symbolic um, prize, really, that he'd captured British territory. And he was sure that Churchill would want to take it back, which, you know, which he did. But um, realistically, Churchill knew that wasn't going to be possible. But Hitler was completely fixated on them. He had um, what his advisors called an insulvan, an island madness, to defend them. So they had huge quantities of, you know, concrete poured in, barbed wire, uh, bunkers everywhere, observation towers everywhere. I mean, if you go to the islands today, you'll see the coasts are littered with these kind of relics of the war. And to build those, they brought in this army of tens of thousands of slave labourers, some from France, some from Spain, um, quite a large number from Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, often men that the German army had defeated in battle and then taken as prisoner and then they'd be brought over as slaves. And although the Germans typically in the Channel Islands treated the local people fairly well, you know, they were quite polite, they weren't brutal to them the way that they were in France, for example, in the occupation there, the way that these slaves were treated was a real shock to a lot of people. You know, they'd be beaten in the streets, they were starving, they were dressed in rags, many of them didn't have shoes. Um, You know, they were really desperate and in a really terrible state. And the more of them that came over, the more people witnessed the treatment of them and sort of thought, well, you know, yeah, okay, so the Germans might be treating us quite well because they they think of us as English. And, you know, they partly Hitler had this sort of sentimental idea about the English as being a sort of kindred... Do you know what I mean? Almost, he, yeah. he, he couldn't bear the fact that he couldn't quite make a deal with the English. Do you know what I mean? He mm. thought it ought to be possible to kind of, um, you know, sort of accept each other somehow. Um, but obviously these people, they were, you know, the Russians, for example, were uh, untermenschen. They were subhumans as far as the Nazis were concerned. So they treated them accordingly. Um, 
and the more people started to witness that, the more, again, it kind of gave them an insight into the sort of, you know, really more brutal, um, awful side of the Third Reich that to some extent they'd been spared from seeing up to that point. Yeah, and I guess could make them question what's actually going on mm. beyond the island, exactly, you know, in, yeah. in France and the other places where there was German occupation. Yeah, um, I was going to ask: there were Jewish people living on the island before mm. the Germans arrived. Obviously, it, it would be interesting to say what what happened to some of these people. Did they evacuate before they arrived? Did were some of them still there when the Germans arrived? I think it's quite an important question, um, given obviously the context of the war. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the yeah, uh, the majority of them did evacuate quite wisely, you know, because um, there was this period of evacuation. Quite a lot of people did evacuate. And certainly most Jewish people, you know, knowing the Germans were coming wisely, took the course of evacuating to England. Um, not all of them were able to, though. So, for example, um, there were a few cases. For example, there was a woman who uh, was Austrian, uh, an Austrian Jew who had ended up, she actually ended up in Sark uh, rather than Guernsey, but Sark was kind of under the umbrella of Guernsey. And she was working for an English family uh, as an au pair. She was on holiday with them. And then they went back home to England when, you, you know, they could see what was happening, basically, um, and left her there. But because she was Austrian, she wasn't allowed to go into England with her. So she got held behind and she wasn't kind of released until the Germans had already arrived. Um, and she, as a result, was ultimately deported and ended up in Auschwitz and lost her life. Um, you know, so there were a handful of really awful stories of Jews who, for whatever reason, couldn't get away and then ended up, um, you know, a handful ended up in the concentration camps. Um Someone like Sherwell, I mean, he wrote in his memoirs, and I, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that he was lying about this, but he, because a lot of these stories didn't really come to light until the 1990s when people started sort of piecing together what had happened to some of these people. He believed absolutely that all the Jews had evacuated. So, you know, another kind of controversial area was the Germans would ask him to pass anti-Semitic laws. And he, again, you know, felt, basically his view was, well... I don't like this, but it's not harming anyone because they've all gone anyway. As it so turned out, he was as... wrong. Such as, uh, you know, wearing yellow stars, closing down Jewish businesses, registering all Jews. Um, and there were other Jews who, you know, for example, some some Jews managed to convince the Germans that they weren't Jewish. You know, there was a woman on Sark who, um, although she had a big red J stamped on her passport, managed to fabricate a kind of family tree claiming that she was Aryan. And in the end, the Germans did, you know, they pushed and pushed and pushed and in the end, they kind of gave up with her and said, all right, fine, we'll accept that you're Aryan. So she sort of got away with it. Other Jews went into hiding. I mean, there was in Jersey, there was a, a physiotherapist who hid a Jewish woman in his basement for, you know, pretty much the whole, you know, for many years, for pretty much the whole occupation. Um, and there were, you know, there were other instances of Jews who were stuck there for whatever reason and kind of went basically e either... Uh, you know, pretended to be Christians and, and got away with it or kind of went into hiding. Um, and, and some of them, if they, the majority of the Jews, when they were deported, they were deported, they weren't deported to concentration camps, they were deported to internment camps where the regime, which were the same camps that the British-born islanders were sent to. And the regimes there were quite... I mean, you know, no one wants to be in a prison camp, but they they weren't particularly brutal or, you, you know, certainly no one was killed. There wasn't any kind of... Um, they weren't treated cruelly, if you know what I mean. They were kind of treated as as like prisoners of war in a sense. Um, but, you know, still there were this handful who had the, the worst possible outcome, basically. Um, you know, through a mixture of, I suppose, 
again, kind of naivety on the part of the authorities in not realising that, that these laws could affect anyone. But also, I suppose, arguably, you know, the other thing, someone like Sherwell might have said was, well, they were going to do it anyway. What could I have done to stop it? But he, he did write something which was quite interesting in his memoirs, which is that he had sort of spoken to the local government, the states, and said, look, I think we should just pass these laws because we're trying to get on with the Germans. This was also, it all happened at the same time as these two men were were they, weren't they going to be executed? And he was doing his best to kind of smooth things over. Um, but then he said one of his colleagues in the States basically gave this very impassioned speech saying, I will never support these kind of laws. This is wrong. You know it's wrong. You can't put your name to it. You, you know, it doesn't matter if it doesn't affect anyone. It's a matter of principle, basically. And he said as he was listening to it, he felt, yeah, I know this guy is right and what I'm saying is wrong. But he was sort of committed to this wrong course of action in a way. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You mentioned that it's it was a relatively peaceful occupation compared to other places. Um, what was day-to-day life like? Like, what sort of um, rules were in place for the islanders? So there'd be a curfew and the hours of the curfew would change according to, I mean, for example, if there was some kind of misbehaviour or whatever, there would often be a curfew restriction put in place as punishment. Uh, but so it would mean you couldn't, you know, go out to the pub all evening or whatever. You'd have to be back by nine o'clock or whenever it was at the time. Um, food was quite strictly rationed. So a lot of people were, you know, really struggling to put food on the table. So, for example, um, hence we have the, you know, the famous potato peel pie was something that everyone could, you know, if you didn't have any meat, you could basically put potato, everyone could get potato peelings and potatoes and so on. You, you can make a pie out of that. Um, and also there were often ways of sort of 
beating the system. You know, there was a black market developed and was very popular. People started illegally raising animals in secret for slaughter because the Germans would take a large proportion. If you had a farm, for example, they would come and uh, a, a certain amount of your pigs or whatever would be earmarked for the Germans. And people found it very difficult to sort of keep um, themselves going financially under those kind of constraints. Uh, nearly everyone had their cars confiscated. Uh, so it became very difficult to get around. I mean, a lot of people ended up getting hold of secondhand bikes. So you would see pretty much everyone would be cycling around uh, on these ancient clapped out old bikes. And when the tyres uh, sort of wore out, you couldn't replace the tyres. So people would use hose pipes. They'd be kind of, you know, jiggling along on yeah. these on these hose pipes, basically. Um, but people really just tried to get on with life as, as much as possible. For the most part, that was the challenge, was just to kind of keep going, to kind of survive. Um, you know, in terms of food, that might mean going down to the beaches and gathering up uh, seaweed to make into a blancmange. It might mean um, going out gleaning in the fields after the harvest, you know, picking up little, you know, sort of stumpy bits of broccoli or something, and then, you know, seeing what you can make with that. But really, it was a kind of time for personal ingenuity, you know, the kind of make do and mend spirit, which, you know, which we had in England as well, uh, was absolutely the order of the day there, you know, whether that's, you know, trying to make sure your children have clothes to wear, or say in the schools, you know, they didn't have any exercise books. I mean, one woman told me that her teacher used to rip down the wallpaper in his house and then cut it up and then, you know, put string through it to make little exercise books out of. And she said, you know, first we'd write on the the back, the white side, and then we'd have to write on the pattern side as well. And then we didn't have anything, you know. Yeah, get every exactly, little yeah. inch out of that paper. <laughs> I know, I know. So, um, you know, really it was just a case of, as, you know, increasingly as time went on, everything got harder and harder. And it just, you know, it sort of got to the point you're kind of running out of everything and there's not enough coming in if anything is coming in at all. Because um, they did have a, tra they had a kind of trading post in France. So they could to some degree trade for supplies and so on there. Uh, but, you know, the supplies were getting more and more limited there. And then after D-Day, they were cut off altogether. Yeah. So. And I guess the supplies were prioritised for the, the front lines rather than mm. to the Channel Islands. Yeah. 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 One of the interesting things is before the Germans arrived, the islanders had a little bit of time. They didn't actually have that much warning mm. from Britain. Britain were like, we, we can't help you anymore. You're, you know, basically left yourselves now. Um, but some of them did manage to get out. What was it like when they came back to the islands after the war and there was sort of this period of reintegration? That was a very difficult time, I think. And I mean, a lot of people that I spoke to, because mainly I spoke to people who stayed in the islands, but I did speak to a few who'd evacuated and they told me how difficult it was for them as well, you know, because often families would be split in two. I mean, I spoke to one guy, for example, who he was evacuated, but I think his parents and his elder siblings had stayed. And he said, basically, he never felt like part of the family again, really. He just felt like for those five, because it was five years, you know. Um, and I suppose part of the thing is that when people sent their kids off across the sea to England, they thought maybe it would be six months or something. It might be a year. Do you know what I mean? No one really thought it would be that length of time. Uh, but five years is a very long time for a child in particular to be separated from their parents. Um, so, so there were, you know, stories like that where on a personal level, the kind of reintegration was difficult. But then also for a lot of people, you know, adults or children, th there were other things that were kind of hard to get over. I mean, if you'd been living in England and you'd been being bombed in the Blitz and, you know, you'd seen the Germans as this kind of far-off enemy who all they did was rain down destruction and kill people, the idea that your family members or your friends had been, you know, might have had a German in their spare room or they might even have been 
you know, eating with them occasionally or chatting to them or in some cases making friends with them um, would be hard to swallow. And so often I think when people came back, there was this kind of distrust on both sides that, you know, the ones who'd stayed and had endured the starvation and the, the real, you know, awfulness of occupation felt kind of resentful to those who'd left, felt that they'd almost run away from it and kind of escaped all of that. The ones who'd left and who had kind of not had to compromise in any way, who had kind of maintained this kind of very black and white idea about our side and their side and so on in the war, um, were quite distrustful of the ones who'd stayed. You know, were they all collaborators? Had they all been fraternising? Had they behaved properly in a sense in this situation? Um, and I think it took many, many years for a lot of those kind of rifts to heal, both within families and within society more generally. I mean, you mentioned this idea of them being collaborators. How does how do the islanders view this now? How does this sit within their history, this idea that they were collaborating with the Germans? I think it remains quite a difficult subject. And I mean, I was quite conscious, you know, I was going there as someone from the mainland, you know, going there as an English person and asking about all this. Um, and, you know, my approach very much with all my books, to be honest, is is not, I, I don't really go into a community to judge them, if you know what I mean. I go in to find out what it was like for them. So, you know, I think my book compared to some other books that have been written about this subject, certainly from a mainland perspective, is much more focused on and more interested in what was it like for ordinary people? How did they kind of make do? How did they survive? And so on. Um, but because there's this legacy of, um, particularly, th there was a woman called Madeline Bunting who wrote a book about 20 odd years ago called The Model Occupation, which was very much a sort of hatchet job on the Channel Islands, if you know what I mean, and 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 painted them in a very negative light. And I think a lot of people after that were very anxious about their own history in a sense. But, you know, I, I interviewed a woman, for example, I mean, sometimes I, I think it can be taken to a bit of an extreme. You know, I, I spoke to this woman who was, I don't know, seven years old or something uh, at the start of the occupation. And she had, they had some Germans in the house next door and she became quite friendly with them because, you know, a lot of the German soldiers, they had kids at home that they hadn't seen for a long time. Um, and, she, and she got out this autograph book that she'd kept as a child and some of the Germans had written, you know, messages in it saying, you know, how lovely to meet you and, and so on. But she hesitated to show it to me and she said, you know, I don't want you to think that I was a collaborator uh, because I made friends with the Germans. And so I think there's this sort of almost, there's a lack of subtlety somehow to the distinctions between different levels of decisions that people made. And also the fact that sometimes, you know, sometimes people made decisions for what they thought were the right reasons. So for example, Ambrose Sherwell is quite a controversial figure because he, Churchill basically thought he was a quisling. You know, he effectively thought he was a collaborator because he went so far in trying to sort of appease the Germans, in trying to work with the Germans. Um, he, for example, prepared a radio broadcast, which the Germans asked him to make, to go out on the BBC was his intention, reassuring the islanders who'd evacuated that the Germans were behaving themselves, everything was going well, that everything was fine, um, you know, and didn't realise, because he was, I mean, I'd say, he, you know, he was a decent man, but he was a bit naive politically, if you know what I mean. Didn't realise, of course, the Germans would turn this into a massive propaganda coup. Churchill was horrified, you know, here's this man who's supposed to be the local leader, basically praising the Germans. Um, and, you know, and there were certainly instances where he made questionable, highly questionable decisions based on the idea that he thought he was doing the right thing at the time. So, for example, he uh, rushed a law through the States, making it illegal to... Um, 
cause a deterioration in relations with the Germans. And the reason was that there was a man who'd been arrested and the Germans were going to try him in their court. And they said he could try him in the local court if he would, uh, but there wasn't a law to try him under. They had to make a law that he could be you know, supposedly a broken in order to find him not guilty of breaking it. So from but his of course, perspective, he was like, I'm helping from this. From his perspective, yeah. he was like, I'm helping this poor man who's been arrested. And, and, you know, and it worked for that man. But then as a result, he's made it illegal now for anyone to do anything that might antagonise the Germans. So, you know, things like that. I mean, I don't know whether you call that collaboration or not, but it's definitely a very questionable decision. Um, and similarly, when this, when he negotiated this amnesty for these two guys who were going to be shot, I mean, with the best intentions, obviously, you know, he was trying to save these two men's lives. But for example, he was negotiating with the commandant and, and, um, and he said to the commandant, who, who was quite new in the job, you know, I don't know if people will trust an amnesty if it comes from you. Uh, you know, if it just comes from the German authorities, why don't you, why don't we publish a pair of letters where you write to me and say, I'm thinking of doing an amnesty and I'll write back and say, that's an excellent idea. And we'll have this sort of back and forth and we can publish them both in the paper to show that I'm on board, you're on board, that it's a kind of joint thing. And and the commandant said, yes, fine, that's great. Um, and then Sherwell went even further, which the thing I find is quite astonishing. He said, I'll tell you what, why don't I write both the letters? Oh, no. uh, so I'll write, I'll write the letter from you, which he wrote in deliberately bad English, pretending to be the German commandant. And then I'll write a reply from me in, you know, good English. And then, you know, you can check them, see you're happy with them, and then we'll publish them both. You know, he was crossing lines like this quite often. And, and ultimately, as he saw it, you know, because he did spend this period in prison um, when it all kind of blew up in his face. He said he saw that he saw his actions as fatuous in the end, that basically he'd been desperately trying to, as he put it, run the occupation for them to protect his people. Uh, and ultimately he realised it was a stupid thing to do. It was never going to work. Um, so something like that, it's kind of, I mean, I'm not too harsh in my judgment of him because I think he his heart was in the right place most of the time. He was he was trying to do what he thought he was supposed to be doing, but he made some spectacularly bad decisions along the way. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about was the relationships between, between some of the local women and some of the German men. Because mm. this was, however some of them might have got on with the Germans, this was an absolute no-no. Like, what, what would happen if a local woman and a, a German soldier were found to, you know, have had a relationship? Well, it was a no-no, uh, but at the same time, it happened quite frequently. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> loads of it's, it's one of those, the there are lots of young men on the island. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the local men have left, you know, to join the forces or whatever. Uh, so most of the men who are there are Germans. Again, they're very polite, they're very friendly, they're smartly dressed in their uniforms. Uh, you know, they're, they're not organising a reign of terror. They're kind of generally being quite nice and buying people ice creams and things. Um, and a lot of women... I mean, first of all, the question of how many women did have relationships with them is hard to quantify because most won't admit to it. But I mean, just anecdotally, I found it quite interesting. You know, I interviewed 100 odd people. A large proportion of those knew someone who was a jerry bag, they'd call it, you know, someone who had a relationship with a German. Only one of the 100 odd people I interviewed admitted to having had a German boyfriend herself. All these years later, like, still exactly. a bit of a yeah, taboo. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and some of the, particularly men that I interviewed, but some women as well, you know, were still furious about it. You know, you could see it was the one subject that really the passage of, you know, whatever it is, 70 odd years uh, has done nothing to kind of limit that rage that they feel. I mean, one guy I spoke to actually was involved in a gang who went round tarring and feathering jerry bags at the end of the war, you know, shaving their heads, pouring tar over them, all this sort of thing. Um, and I was quite shocked that he was willing to 
talk about that in a way. Um, but he was quite open about it. He said, well, as far as I was concerned, they were the enemy and, you know, they deserve to be punished. And he, I, I don't know. I mean, he, he, he did also say, you know, you do things in war that you wouldn't do at any other time. So I think he felt bad about it. But at the same time, he wasn't really willing to say I was totally wrong to do that. You know, he kind yeah. of was half clinging on to that idea. That's an interesting one because it's obviously they couldn't, as much as some of them may have wanted to, couldn't fight back against the Germans. Mm. But you know, they they could just, they could attack their own women. Well, that's the thing. They were the sort of <laughs> soft target in a way, yeah, yeah, because you could almost get away with, because they were such sort of social pariahs, you could get away with targeting them like that. And, you know, and many of them had their heads shaved or were stripped naked or humiliated in one way or another. I mean, really ugly scenes, basically, at the very tail end of the war. But there was this kind of huge well of uh, resentment towards them, particularly by local men. And I think you're right, a lot of that really was sort of redirected resentment towards the Germans that had been kind of, they were the scapegoats in a way. Uh, and, you know, they were seen as as betraying the islanders more than someone who was doing kind of black market trading with the Germans or someone who had some other kind of you know, unsavoury relationship with the Germans. It was seen as kind of more of a betrayal. But I mean, it's an interesting subject. Because a lot of women that I spoke to, even if they didn't have relationships themselves with the Germans, they would talk about having to kind of fend off that interest. Because for the from the German point of view, you know, they are an army of, of young men. Uh, these are the girls who are around, basically. Um, and so they did often get a lot of propositions or a lot of people asking to take them out or so on. And, you know, a handful of them would say to me, to be honest, I was tempted, but I just knew I couldn't do it. I had to say no. One woman, for example, said, uh, yeah, I, occasionally I let a German walk me home. She works in the German shop in town. Sometimes I'd let them walk me home, but that was as far as it would go. And she said basically it was because her father had been gassed in the First World War and she just knew it would sort of break his heart to think that she was dating one of the Germans, basically. And for a lot of women, it was the father's who had that kind of First World War experience, who kind of really put a, you know, kind of put a barrier to even considering those kind of relationships, more yeah. so than the kind of societal um, disapproval in a way. Yeah, it would have been very hard for them to go from fighting in the First World War to suddenly mm. being, ex you know, accepting of, of that kind of relationship, I suppose. Um one of the things I did want to ask you was, you, you've sort of talked about Churchill already. I mean, just before the Germans came to the Channel Islands, he made his famous, we will fight them on the beaches speech. Mm -hmm. But this didn't apply to the Channel Islands. No. Nope. <laughs> so it seems a bit of a contradiction in a way. And you've touched on it. He wasn't happy about it. No. Did Britain abandon the Channel Islands, in your view? Well, I guess that's a very difficult question. I think a lot of people at the time felt that. They felt they'd been abandoned. I mean, not everyone in the Channel Islands loves Churchill as much as uh, we do, if you know what I mean. I mean, and that's not to say that that everyone doesn't. I mean, I was there for um, every year they celebrate Liberation Day, uh, which is the day when, you know, the British forces arrived. And there was a guy there who'd come over from England uh, who was a Churchill impersonator. And, you know, he, crowds were sort of celebrating him and, and kind of cheering him and so on. But, you know, I had a conversation with him and I said, well, it's interesting you being Churchill over here because Churchill's quite a controversial figure in the Channel Islands, certainly for those who lived through the occupation, maybe less so for future generations. One woman, for example, um, Pearl, who I mentioned earlier, who was in the um, variety company, she was very, had, you know, some quite harsh views on Churchill. I mean, she very much felt that uh, England had abandoned the islands and that, that Churchill was responsible. I think a lot of people didn't realise how reluctantly he took that decision. Um, and at the end of the war, 
he was quite unsympathetic to the islanders for the sort of suffering they were going through. I mean, people would say to him, look, can we get something in the, you know, on the BBC? Because we know they're listening, sort of saying we haven't forgotten you, you know, kind of wishing them well and so on. He was always very much against that. I think largely because it was bad PR. He didn't really want people to remember that there was a uh, British territory in German hands. So they sort of washed their, publicly washed their hands of them a bit. Um, and then at the end of the war, when he made his big speech on VE Day, he, he included this line, and our dear Channel Islands are uh, also to be freed today. And Pearl said she was listening to it on her illegal radio, and she said to her sister, our dear Channel Islands, he couldn't care less if we were all shot. You know, that was basically her understanding of Churchill's attitude towards the islands, and not totally inaccurate, I think. I mean, I think he had, partly because he'd always resented having to give them up, partly because he had formed this very negative opinion of some of the local uh, authorities feeling that they were getting too chummy with the Germans and so on. Um, he was quite, he, he didn't have a lot of sympathy for the islanders. And when they did get to that point after D-Day where they were really starving and people were sending pleas for help, you know, send aid and so on, um, Churchill basically said no. He said no, because if we send aid, the Germans will take it and we're not doing anything that will help them uh, last out any longer. And he famously, he um, wrote in the margin of a memo, let them starve. Uh, by which he meant the Germans. You know, he wanted the German troops to be starved into submission. But I think a lot of people sort of thought, well, what about, you know, he's kind of almost referring to the locals as well if he says that, because he he doesn't seem to care that much what happens to them. So I think it's a difficult question. I, I think, you know, with hindsight, a lot of people can recognise the reasons that they weren't defended in the first place, the reasons that withdrawal took place, the reasons the Germans were allowed to take them. Um, and then again, for example, on D-Day, it, it sort of almost happened again because... A lot of islanders told me, you know, they saw the planes going over, they could hear the fighting in France and they thought, right, this is it, we're about to be liberated. Because obviously, you know, once they, once the Allied forces have the coast of France, the Channel Islands are behind the lines. You know, it's sort of a no-brainer that they would free them. But in fact, they didn't, largely because um, Eisenhower was very against it because he didn't like the idea of particularly American forces going into British-occupied territory and potentially killing British subjects by accident, you know, kind of friendly fire and so on which was why the decision was made to essentially bypass them and just head on to Berlin and finish the war. And then when the war was over, they would kind of by default surrender, essentially. But a lot of people told me, you know, in that kind of period they had on D-Day, they thought they were about to be liberated and then days, weeks, months would go by. And at some point that realisation came, they've left us behind again, they've forgotten about us again. Uh, that coupled with the fact that then the food shortage got increasingly dire, people were literally dying of starvation. I think for a lot of people, it really did feel like they'd been you know, they'd been left behind. They, they weren't really on the minds of the people making the decisions anymore. And do you think that the whole occupation was Hitler's, you know, you, your, your book is called Hitler's British Isles. Mm -hmm. Was it him trialling out what his British occupation might ultimately have looked like? Yeah, it was definitely. And it was, you know, part of it was a, a PR exercise. I mean, Hitler sent a sociologist to the islands fairly early on in the um, occupation to offer some kind of advice on how to proceed and what to do with the local people and sort of how to manage them and so on. And what this guy wrote in his report, um, which you can read in the archives at Kew, is... Uh, Essentially, the, the islands, the best way of looking at the occupation of the Channel Islands was to see them as a public relations exercise, that the idea was to prove the Germans can be kind of just rulers, they can be reasonable rulers, to try and encourage the English people on the mainland, uh, 
or the people on the mainland to think, well, if they do come over and, you know, they we do fight and lose, that basically living under German occupation is not as bad as all that. And that thereby they would sort of crush the resistance movement um, nip it in the bud almost because people would think, well, it's not that bad actually living under the Germans. Maybe it's not worth dying over this. Um, so that was a big part of it. Uh, so yes, that is one reason the book is called Hitler's British Isles is, I mean, partly they are literally, they were Hitler's only British Isles in that they are part of the British Isles and they were the only ones that he had. But it is also sort of to try and look at that sort of broader question, you know, which I'm fascinated by, which people have always been fascinated by, what would it be like if Germany had won the war? Because, you know, it came pretty close, uh, particularly at at that kind of period when the Channel Islands were taken, you know, after Dunkirk in that kind of period. The war was slightly on a knife edge, if you know what I mean. It it could have gone differently. Um, and in a way, you know, we're, we're always looking for these kind of fictional stories, whether it's, um, you know, SSGB or, or the novel Dominion or The Man in the High Castle in America or whatever, these kind of counterfactual novels imagining what if Britain had lost the war, what if the Allies had lost the war. Well, in the Channel Islands, you kind of get the closest uh, sort of test case for what that might have been like, for what the kind of occupation we would have experienced would have been like. So I think quite apart from the fact that it's an interesting story in its own right, that I think it's an important element of the war that we tend to not really think about, partly because of that kind of idea of Churchill's to sort of brush it under the carpet and not think about it for the duration of the war. Uh, But also, you know, it does give us a kind of insight into what could so easily have happened for the rest of Britain. That was Duncan Barrett. Hitler's British Isles is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. And you can also read an interview with Duncan on our website, historyextra.com. Meanwhile, the September issue of BBC History magazine has just gone on sale. Inside this month's edition, we have articles on medieval medicine, Victorian vegetarianism, a World War II death railway, and plenty more. Plus, we reveal the results of our poll on 100 women who changed the world. And that's about it for today. But do listen in next week when we'll be releasing a new programme every weekday to celebrate the fact that we'll have reached our 500th episode. So make sure to listen in for those. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.